0: Instead of leaving milk and cookies for Santa this year, consider leaving out a piece of birthday cake. Oklahoma State's birthday cake to be exact. Not only is December 25th Christmas Day, it's also OSU's 130th birthday. Happy holidays and welcome to the Inside OSU podcast. I'm your host, Megan Robinson. Today's guest is David Peters, head of the Oklahoma State Archives Department. Join us as we take a look back at 130 years of school history. 130 years of university. Oklahoma State's birthday is coming up this week. But when we talked initially, you said that that wasn't exactly true. That wasn't accurate, I should say. So what's the story behind the actual birthday of Oklahoma State?
1: So I I don't want to get trapped in the semantics here, but really December 25th is like the birth announcement where you're going to blow up a balloon and put something in it, and then when you pop it, it's going to be, you know, pink or blue. Well, in our case, it's going to be orange, of course. But December 25th is really the announcement. There's going to be a college. We don't have any property yet. We don't have a board of regents. We don't have faculty. We don't have students. We don't have any of that. But we have the potential for a college to be established in Payne County. That's all we knew with December 25th. For the first 80, 90 years of our existence, we had 1891 on our seal. But As we began to plan for our centennial celebrations, we realized that the other institutions that had been formed at that same legislation, University of Central Oklahoma and then the University of Oklahoma uh, in Norman, they were both created with that same enabling legislation, and they began to shift over to the 1890 date uh, when that enabling legislation was signed by the territorial governor. So we decided to then celebrate 1890 is our official beginning with that same date.
0: Because, of course, we can't have OU being ahead of us.
1: That is correct.
0: And one of the interesting things about that 1890 year is that Oklahoma wasn't a state at that point.
1: Right. We're we're still in the Oklahoma Territory. The eastern, more or less, half of, of Oklahoma is still the Indian Territory. So we were designated as the college for the Oklahoma Territory.
0: The university birth announcement was December 25th, 1890. When was the first actual class? When did the school open?
1: So I'll I'll give you a little background. By June, there's a site selection committee that that is narrowed down the site uh, to Stillwater uh, in Payne County. And then by November, that property then officially changes hands to the designated Board of Regents, and then by late November, they began hiring the first faculty. And so by December 13th or 14th, the first classes begin. There are no facilities on campus. They are meeting in buildings in downtown Stillwater. They're meeting in local churches that have been established within the last two years. But yes, the December 13th, 14th, I can't remember exactly. One day, that I think they registered for classes, and the next day they began their first courses.
0: And the original name was not Oklahoma State it was Oklahoma A&M.
1: Oklahoma Agricultural Mechanical College.
0: So when did that name change sort of shift and why did they decide to shift to Oklahoma State?
1: So that happened beginning in 1956-57. We had begun transitioning to a more comprehensive institution. We always had had arts and sciences and humanities and and a lot of other coursework besides agriculture mechanical. By the mid-1950s, Not only here, but other universities too, Iowa State, uh, Kansas State, they were A&M schools. They all began shifting into more of a university denomination and then having colleges of agriculture, college of engineering, colleges of home economics. So by 57, then we, we shift over to Oklahoma State University. Interesting, students who had begun attending before that, when they graduated, they could choose to have the diplomas under OAMC or OSU for the next, I think, two or three years.
0: And what would be the point in choosing one over the other?
1: Some felt a, a strong uh, connection with OAMC. I mean, they had entered Oklahoma Agricultural Mechanical College, and so they saw that as their college. And so it was just a kind of a branding thing for them. Other students saw it as a new phase, and they wanted to be students of Oklahoma State University.
0: I like that they let them choose to feel whatever they had more of an attachment to. If you're very set with, you know, I started at Oklahoma A&M. I want that on my diploma. I like that they gave them that option. Going back to something you said earlier about the facilities around campus. Where were students living? What were some of the costs like? Because I did some reading on this and some research before speaking with you. And obviously we're a hundred years down the line. Inflation is a thing. Prices change. But when you hear about the cost of tuition and room and board, it's just like, was that real life? (laughs)
1: Well, initially, there weren't any costs associated with the, the school itself. You had very minimal fees that you had to pay. Most of the early students, over 90% of the students, they live with their families in Stillwater. So they didn't have any costs as being a resident. The other 10% probably came from Payne County and came in for the day they had glass and then went back home. The cost really was was their time. Many of these young people had been assisting their, their families with the family farm or the family business that was just being established. You know, Stillwater was only created a few years before now. So a lot of things are, are in development. And so to give up this time to allow their young students to, to go to college, that's kind of the investment. Over half of our first students didn't really qualify for college. Many of them didn't even have high school And so they had a preparatory program they had to take. And so they had some initial classes in basic history, math, English. And if they proved themselves in the preparatory program, then they would be admitted into the college. No one in their family ever had a chance to go to college. Now they have a college in their town, and they have a chance to get a college degree.
0: And that preparatory program, is that done through Oklahoma State, or is that a separate program?
1: That was through A&M. They had a, a preparatory kind of school uh, associated with the college initially some of the same faculty taught those classes and then they kind of gauge how the students were doing and then move them into the the college program if they felt they were doing well enough
0: and you mentioned that stillwater was sort of just up and coming it was just being established and developed was that part of the appeal of choosing stillwater as the home for Oklahoma am at that time
1: well the the land opening had just occurred you know it was in 1889 so this whole area is is now the first time had European settlement in it of course there have been those in individuals who had come early. I think we called them Sooners. But this whole area, it was, it was under development. And so really, the townspeople and the people in Payne County were wanting the Agriculture Experiment Station almost as much as they wanted the college, because now you have all these new homesteaders on land that had never been used for, for farming purposes, and they had really little idea about what was going to do well. So if they had an Experiment Station farm testing things for them. And then they can make those recommendations to all of these farmers. I have to Remember, we're, we're 90% rural in Payne County at that time. And so here you have testing going on at the Agricultural Experiment Station that then advises them, you know, you probably don't want to grow sugar cane, but you might consider wheat. <laughs> it was just a blessing for the Stillwater community to have a college and the Experiment Station.
0: When did Oklahoma become an actual state? And what was that transition like for the university?
1: So, Oklahoma becomes come as a state in November 1907. At that point now, we become the land-grant college for the whole state and not just the, the western Half of, of what is now Oklahoma. What also happens with statehood is there's a dramatically expanded infrastructure within the state now. They're build, building highways. They're connecting major cities, Tulsa and Oklahoma City. And so you have a dramatic change in uh, the capabilities of the state and interest from people around now this new state to attend. Uh, and so our, our student demographics change dramatically from just being kind of Stillwater and Payne County centric statewide. And so now we're attracting students from around the state. First of all, there's a way to get here. There are roads and railroad railroad tracks leading uh, towards Stillwater, but also they have the capability uh, and the time and the talent. Statehood creates a dramatic change in both the things we were able to provide on campus uh, with new revenue streams coming in from the state, and then our attraction uh, began to expand not only within the state, but now we begin our first efforts really to reach out of Oklahoma and begin attracting students from other states too.
0: And you mentioned a lot of the students at that time were from Payne County, from Stillwater, and you look at Oklahoma State today, 130 years later, and there are 25,000 students, grad and undergrad, from not only the country, but all over the world. How big was the initial inaugural class here at what was then Oklahoma A&M?
1: The first graduating class, there were six members of that class. They were all men. There would have been one woman, Kate Neal, was a part of that class, but her father, who was on the faculty, had passed away in December, and her mother moved the family back to Tennessee. And so she was one semester shy of graduating with that first class. So she could have been in that class. The next class did have a woman, uh, Jesse Thatcher-Bost, uh, was in the next class. There were three members of the, of the second class, a graduating class. So six in the first one and then three in the next. And then we steadily grew from there.
0: The first building at Oklahoma a Oklahoma State, was what is now Old Central. I just think that it's so cool that there's literally a piece of history on this campus that is still used to this day. So what was that building used for then and compared to what it's used for now?
1: A slight distinction. It was the first permanent building. There were several other smaller wood frame structures that came up almost immediately. There was a little barn that was built roughly where that intersection of Morrill Avenue and Hester Avenue are, but there was a barn there. There was an experiment station laboratory just southeast of where Old Central is now. So there were several of these wood frame buildings that popped up. But Old Central is the first permanent building, and it was the all-purpose building. I mean, you had the assembly hall on the second floor. You had the chemistry labs in the basement. You had the offices of the president and the faculty. The offices of the experiment station director were up on on the top floor. It had classrooms, office space, the assembly area. It was an all-purpose building. They felt it was going to be really all they needed for a while, and initially they had planned to put it where the OSU library is now, but too many people from Stillwater complained that those, their students would have to walk so much further, so they moved it back to where it is now, but originally it was going to be where the library was, which was closer to the middle of the original property.
0: I wonder what those people would say now, seeing what the campus has become and students having to walk far. I'm sure they'd be like, what is this?
1: We have to think in scale, and, and the scale was so much smaller back then. Just the idea of having a college was wonderful, and they didn't really think about the size so much. And the experiment station farm took up 90% of the original property. It was all all test plots and... and barns, trying to grow things.
0: As someone who went to a very small college in a city where it basically was on two city blocks, I can appreciate the close quarter campus. So I think I would have enjoyed 1890 Oklahoma State where there wasn't too far to venture as opposed to now where you could be walking 15 minutes between classes. So that was right up my alley. And you've mentioned a lot about the agriculture classes and the testing and the farming that sort of was big, a big part of Oklahoma A&M in its early years. How do you compare to what it is now and all of the courses and the six different colleges and what it has become?
1: Well, it's it's a whole different world, just the volume, the the options. There are just so many more opportunities now that people can take advantage of. And not only on our campus, to think of, of the opportunities to travel worldwide as a part of your coursework. And so, you know, this is just a jumping off point. Initially, in those first years, it was kind of a destination point. Now it's just a beginning point where you can experience all kinds of things and you have so many more variables. 25,000 students is, is a lot more than, I think there was, well, six in the graduating class. I think there were probably close to 50 students, you know, enrolled around that number.
0: One of the things that I firmly believe is that people make the place. If people are great, you can love your experience. If people are not great, you cannot love your experience. But there have been a lot of great people that have come through Oklahoma State so I just want to get into a couple of them and what they have meant to the school the first being Nancy Randolph Davis and for those people who are not as familiar with Oklahoma State who was she and why is she so important to this university?
1: Well, you have to remember that uh, through the really the late 1940s, we are a segregated school. We have not allowed any African-Americans into the college. We had Native Americans here. We had international students here. But if you were an American citizen and or of, of African heritage, uh, you would not be admitted. By the late 1940s, though, uh, the shift had finally reached Oklahoma. If you're African-American, you were sent to Langston. That was your college. Well. There were now attempts to to kind of break those limits. And so uh, Nancy Randolph applies for graduate school here in, well, now it's human sciences, it was home economics. And she's admitted. So she is the first uh, African-American student to be admitted uh, into a program at Oklahoma State University and initially even though she was admitted she was not treated equally or fairly she in some classes was required to sit outside in the hallway and other classes they would they would rope off a section of the room for her to sit in that area but she proved very quickly that she was as capable as any of the other students in the class and oftentimes the students were her advocates and and the teachers too realized very quickly that This is ridiculous. Eventually, she was able to join the class, and there wasn't a separate space. And within a short period of time, uh, she completed her graduate program and graduated. She was not the first African American to graduate. There were two gentlemen who had started their graduate program elsewhere and transferred in, and so they actually graduated before she did, but she was the first to be admitted. And it began our slow evolution. We're still in that in that fight. That was the beginning. She uh, was brave enough and courageous and very capable. And she did well and, and led the way for many others.
0: And she now has a statue outside of the Human Sciences Building, which I think is more than deserved. Another person who has a statue here that was actually just unveiled last month outside of the stadium is Boone Pickens. He has done so much for this university. What does he mean to Oklahoma State alumni?
1: Earlier I talked about scale. When Mr. Pickens begins to become involved with uh, the university, initially it was in athletics, but he also expanded that into academics later on. But he brings a whole new... Scale to things and expectation for things. And so, uh, with his uh, generosity, we began to see more opportunities and and a bigger picture of what could happen uh, with investment. And not just his investment, he was very adept at making sure this was a team effort. And so, it became an inspiration for others to then join the, the team. I think in some ways it was his inspiration, uh, as as much as the dollars, the dollars were very appreciated, but the inspiration that he provided for others to be a part of something special and to build on traditions that we had, but then trying to make things much better for the future. And it impacted every aspect of this institution. You know, the statue is, is outside the Boone Pickens Stadium, but his influence is all over campus with the professorships, the endowed professorships, that program dramatically expanded under his efforts. Scholarship programs for students dramatically expanded under his involvement. And so it just uh, just changed our expectations for the future.
0: As a college football fan, I am very familiar with Boone Pickens Stadium. It's one of the iconic stadiums in the sport. But, you know, I've only been here a couple months at Oklahoma State, and I didn't realize that there's also a classroom building that was named after Boone Pickens, and that was built by his donations as well.
1: Are you referring to the geology? Yes. Pickens wing of the Noble Research Center? Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: As an outsider looking in, you're like, oh, it's uh, football. But to your point, like, no, he has way more involvement in the entire university and not just sports. And I think that he's someone that should be recognized for his contributions overall and not just to football.
1: Well, and that geology wing, uh, his involvement with that was was a decade or two before he became more involved with the athletic side of the puzzle. And then... Once again, swinging back around to the academic side.
0: What did President Bennett bring to this university?
1: When he arrives here in, in uh, 1928, let's go back to Old Central. Old Central is really kind of the center of campus. We're a small regional school, and Bennett's vision was for something much more dramatic. I think it, initially people thought he maybe was crazy because he saw something 10 times bigger. In fact, uh, one of the people who worked for him told me, if you wanted ten dollars, Bennett would put a zero at the end to make it a hundred. If you wanted a thousand, he put a zero on to make it ten thousand. Whatever it was, he would he would manifold increase it by ten times. And so he initially comes up with a, a plan. He works with Phil Wilbur, who was uh, in the architecture department here and, and a graduate uh, here in architecture, uh, to develop a, a kind of a master campus plan. He envisioned the library where it is now a little a little different in that he planned it to be like the capital in Oklahoma City, where there'd be a major thoroughfare that would go around it. And of course, when he's planning this, there's like 2,500 students, so it wouldn't be, wouldn't be a problem, you know, for a, a major thoroughfare to go around the library. Of course, by the time it's completed, roughly 25 years later, it would be a, you know, a pedestrian nightmare. So uh, they, they closed off Washington Street. But anyway, he, he begins to plan a, a university, which, which is much bigger, uh, with the library at the center now, at the new center of campus rather than the old central he just had a vision and he also had longevity you know we, we went through a number of presidents over time and they really didn't have a chance to get established but he had what 23 years as president and so we had he had longevity on his side his biggest problem though is when he comes in 28 he has this, he creates this huge plan but then in 29, we have the Depression, and there's no money. But he was creative. He began looking at alternative ways of funding things, began looking at other revenue streams. You know, tr- we, traditionally, we just been dependent upon the legislature for our funding. He said, okay, there's got to be other sources of, of revenue. And so he begins working with the federal government. He's great at building relationships with people, both at the business level, at the, uh, for politicians and, and um, people in government. With alumni, he really encouraged uh, alumni support in, 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 in integrating alumni into the college and not losing touch. With them. He just changes the scale of everything here, and I think he is the most significant individual to change this university from a college to, to what we know today. And he's, he's been dead 70 years almost. He had, he had developed a relationship with President Truman, and actually, he had invited Truman's daughter to come to perform. He was a pianist. Bennett invites Truman's daughter to come to Stillwater to perform. She does several concerts. Bennett collects all of the pictures and the newspaper articles and creates a scrapbook. He goes back to Washington, D.C. when he was in D.C. for uh, a trip and stops by the White House. And Truman says, oh, sure, I'd love to meet you. And he presents Truman with his scrapbook of his of Truman's daughter's visit to Stillwater. And they begin a relationship. And then Truman then eventually uh, names uh, Bennett as his first director of the Point Four program. At the time, uh, Truman was beginning efforts to, to have us reach out into the world. And he picked Henry Bennett as the person to be that shining light uh, reaching out into the world.
0: And then President Bennett ended up taking a trip to the Middle East because of his association with the Truman administration.
1: Right, and he had, he had traveled extensively in, in South America, Central America, but on this particular occasion, he had they'd had gone to the Middle East, and this was the one time where his wife had attended, had gone with him, and they were flying to Iran, Tehran, and uh, the plane crashed and they lost everyone on board. There was just, uh, I think there were uh, four or five people in his contingency, in his group, including his wife uh, and several support personnel in the pilot. It was a sad, sad day.
0: How did the university respond to something like that?
1: Well, it it was a tough hit. Everyone had grown to depend upon uh, Dr. Bennett in a lot of different ways. He had really built the administrative structure to not just the physical structure, but the administrative uh, structure for the institution. Oliver Wilhelm was his vice president, and so uh, Wilhelm immediately stepped into kind of a, a interim role and then was eventually named president. And within about a year or so, Wilhelm was our first graduate from this institution to be named president. We currently have Burns Hargis, who was also a graduate of this fine institution, who is now our president. Wilhelm was able to step in. And there was enough of a, a community, not only uh, at the institution, but within the still Water and Oklahoma to support us during that time. And it it was tough, but uh, we transitioned through.
0: You just mentioned our current president, Burns Hargis, who announced not too long ago that he'd be retiring in summer of 2021. What has Hargis meant to this university in his tenure here?
1: Well, there I think he traces back to Bennett. You know, he he had relationships across the state of Oklahoma before uh, coming here, and then he brought his talents and skills to building collaborations with the business community, with with, uh, the legislature and and our political leaders. You know, just building a sense of belonging and collaboration that really kind of harkened back to the Bennett days. The fundraising was beyond imaginable. I think when when he first proposed, I think it was a billion dollars, and we raised more than that. But when he first said a billion with a B. I think people were shocked and amazed and surprised and kind of crossed their fingers. Could we make it? But we did. We, we made it. And this harkens back to, to Mr. Pickens also. But it was, it was President Hargis who you know, kind of initiated and, and, and then worked with what existing resources we had. And then how do we expand those and reach others? I think building relationships both on and off campus uh, is something that, that uh, President Hargis has brought.
0: And who are some other notable alumni that come through here? Like, who are people super excited to be like, oh, my gosh, they went to OSU, too?
1: Boy, now that's a quiz I hadn't prepared for. Well, I mean, people I think are incredible. Edward Gallagher, former uh, coach, uh, wrestling coach, but he uh, was a student here. He's a football coach. He's a track coach. He leads, leads uh, the physical education department, begins to explore the possibility of wrestling because he wanted a sport in which men uh, of all different sizes could participate. And so wrestling, you know, you break down by weight. And so he began to explore those possibilities and and leads us to, I think, our first 12, 13, 14 NCAA titles, our first NCAA titles ever in any sport, but then within his 15 years of of active coaching here uh, in wrestling, we won almost every year. And and we're just a remarkable gentleman. Anita Hill is a graduate of Oklahoma State University. She has gone on as a scholar and, and served as a government servant. And so she's a remarkable person. We have a few entertainers. There's a guy named Garth Brooks, uh, some of you may have heard of. Sounds familiar. Um, but there have been others. Golly, I'm trying to think of, I will have to think about that one. I'm, I'm leaving out tons of people.
0: I mean, there's a, a very long list, but you've named definitely some key notable people. And I, it's, it's funny you mentioned Gallagher, because I was just at the Wrestling Hall of Fame of all places, and I learned a little bit more about him. And they were saying that he used his background in engineering to learn different holds in wrestling and that's why he was so effective.
1: So yes, he was an engineering graduate here, but he looked at at how you utilize force And anatomy, he also studied human anatomy and looked at the engineering aspects of how the body worked to figure out holds that would help someone manipulate someone else and be successful in wrestling. And he also studied psychology, which was fascinating, too, for a coach in that time period to really inspire uh, young men at that time to do what they needed to do to be successful.
0: In my research, I've come across an interesting theory as to why the school chose black and orange as their colors. Do you know the reason for these two colors?
1: Initially, each class would, would select their colors. By about 1909, 1910, they thought it was important to, to set up a color system, a color scheme for uh, the whole college. Well, there was a faculty member whose father, I believe it was his father, was a Princeton grad or had taught at Princeton. And Princeton, the colors were orange and black, and they were the Tigers. And so initially, our mascot was the Tiger, and our colors were orange and black. And I believe it's based on this faculty member's father who had a connection to Princeton University. And we, we kind of also called ourselves uh, the Princeton of the Prairies. There were several connections with Princeton. I, I believe that's how we ended up with the orange and black and initially uh, the Tigers is our mascot.
0: But you guys are no longer the Tigers. It is Pistol Pete, the one and only. So how did we get go from a, a tiger, which is a wild jungle animal, to a cowboy? <laughs>
1: You know, initially, there, there aren't really athletic conferences like we know of now. But by the mid-1920s, we decided to join what's, what became the Missouri Valley Conference. And in the Missouri Valley Conference was a school, the University of Missouri, which also already had a tiger. We were also looking at different things at that time, too. We were, really weren't pleased with the tiger as, as our mascot anymore. Actually, tie back to Gallagher, when Gallagher's wrestling teams used to travel, they would wear their cowboy boots and their cowboy hats. And oftentimes, the colleges they were visiting would refer to them as the cowboys, the cow- Cowboys are coming from Stillwater because they wore cowboy attire. But then we also have a a parade in which an old gentleman, Frank Eaton, an old cowboy, is riding his horse in the parade. And they start to, to kind of play with the possibility of, well, cowboys, and that guy looks more like somebody would represent us. So they they begin the transition by, I think, 26 or 27. We begin to refer to ourselves as the Cowboys. We keep the orange and black. But we take on the Cowboy mascot. Frank Eaton isn't really officially our, our mascot or, or Pistol Pete, as we refer to him, until 1955 or 56. It's it's later, but we begin calling ourselves the Cowboys in, in the mid to late 20s.
0: I think the Cowboys just fits. Like the Oklahoma State Tigers, I mean, yes, the the color combination is there, but... I just don't think it fits the vibe of this place. But a cowboy, you hit the nail on the head with that one. (laughs)
1: They, they tried several options. The college paper at the time was the orange and black was the title of the paper. And they would throw out these recommendations of, of what do you think it should be. One of them was bullwhackers. It never caught on. Luckily, they ended up with, with Frank Eaton and, and the Cowboys.
0: We've touched on a lot of them through our conversation. But what are some of the most notable changes over the 130 years?
1: The institution's growth has has not always been smooth. We, we've had our challenges. There have been economic changes. We had you know the Dust Bowl and the Depression era, which which really had a Dramatic impact on both the college and people's ability to go to college. The impact of war—you know—we're not immune to all of these things. And so, beginning with the Spanish-American War, uh, had a slight impact. World War One had a more dramatic impact, and then World War Two had a significant impact on our student population, uh, as a number of of young men went off to serve, um, and a number of women went off to serve in a variety of ways too. And and we became a training center during the war years, especially during World War Two. I think. What we've done, though, even in these challenging times, we've always been able to adapt to whatever it is. And at times we've had to cut back, pull back a few things. And other times we kind of try to expand and encourage more development uh, in certain areas. And I think OSU has done that uh, fairly well uh, through the years.
0: When you think about where OSU has come from 1890 to December twenty twenty. 130 years later, what do you hope for this university in the next 130 years?
1: For me, I think it's gonna be important for them to continue to adapt, to continue to lead. We don't know necessarily what direction right now in some things, but take the initiative, be creative, be willing to fail, and we can learn some lessons uh, from the past, we'll make mistakes, but I think if we're creative and innovative, I think if we're flexible, I think if we work together and, and continue to build relationships both in our community and in the world community and develop relationships internationally. I think we'll, uh, we can be a force towards the betterment of society uh, and making improvements for, for all of us and making the world a more secure uh, as we face new challenges.
0: 130 years sure is a lot to cover. I would like to thank David for sharing his knowledge and expertise. If you're still interested in learning more about Oklahoma State's history, check out timeline.okstate.edu. And if you're interested in more Inside OSU podcasts, please like, share, and subscribe. Once again, I'm your host, Megan Robinson. Happy birthday, Oklahoma State, and I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season.